This is God's word. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me a moment? Our gracious God, as we come into this room from different places, all kinds of different stories, we may come with um, so many questions. Maybe, maybe we're new to considering Christianity, and we feel like we just we have no answers, but we have a lot of skepticism, a lot of barriers, and a lot of questions. Others of us may have questions because we, um, we used to feel close to you, and then it seems like that might have been a bygone era of youthful exuberance. And if at all things are going to look like faith for us moving forward, it seems like we're going to have to reconstruct it. Others of us come and we're in the middle of hurts, difficulties, trauma, and some of us come um, with thankfulness and joy because you have answered prayers or you have been clearly present in our lives. And from all these places, we are more than a mess, more, more of a mess than we care to admit. We fall short more than we want others to know. We fall short of our own standards. We fall short of the standards of those around us. And as we come into this room and look to your grace and your story, we see that you move towards broken lives so that at the same time that we're more of a mess than we care to admit, through Christ you make us more loved and accepted than we ever imagined. And we're hoping that that is true and hoping we can hang on to that grace amidst all the struggles that we have in life. Be with us now as we consider these struggles. Be with Emily as she shares some of her journey and her struggles. And I pray that this may be a time where you speak through lived out grace. In Jesus' name, amen. The relevance of talking about um, the church's ministry to uh, mental illness, to people struggling um, with mental illness or mental health. I don't even, as I'm saying those words, I don't even know, I, I feel like I, I'm in this realm of not knowing exactly how to talk about it. And that's part of why we're going to talk about this today. I've personally done so little thought about really how a church and how the gospel of Jesus Christ flows through us into the lives of those who are struggling with mental illness or some point on a spectrum of mental illness. So I claim to have really no answers in this, and um, I'm just going to kind of step out of the way and let Emily talk about her experience. And then perhaps that will start moving us as a community towards greater understanding, greater knowledge, perhaps a couple of answers along the way. And the only lead-in I would give is that there's a lot of talk about this, a lot of churches finally talking about this, because um, a year ago, and this is one of the reasons, is a year ago, um, one of the most famous pastors in the United States, Rick Warren, his son uh, committed suicide. 
And so um, after kind of reeling from that and getting through that, um, or getting a little bit through that, I guess, he and his wife began to focus their efforts on the church talking about this issue. And so there's a lot of articles written. There's things being talked about very openly, like the fact that one-fourth of Americans will suffer a mental illness this year, and 65% of those come to church first for help with their struggles. Um, and then there's the issue of suicide, which doesn't seem to be going away. The issue, um, the rate is remarkable, 38,000 people a year, or about one every 15 minutes in this country, and no sign of decrease over the past 20 years when mortality, uh, when mortality from traffic accidents, homicides, and AIDS, all now less than 38,000 a year, have gone down. Um, so I'm going to say enough said and let Emily come up and talk. All right, well, good morning. Um, good morning, especially to all my friends who came here today. I really appreciate that you all came. There's a lot of new people, and they're all my friends, you guys. <laughs> okay, um, well, uh, so I want to tell you, I'm going to start off by telling you about 2012. And in 2012, I read the whole Bible. Yeah, I know. It's uh, it was something I always wanted to do, but it was always also something kind of like flossing or exercise, where I'd be like, I'm going to read the whole Bible this year on December 31st, and then I'm like, on January 5th, I'd be like, this is pretty long, I don't know. <laughs> um, but in 2012, I totally did it. I read the whole Bible. And um, it was an awesome experience. Um, I suggest it to anyone, which shouldn't be surprising because we're at a church. Um, but... Something that happened when I read the whole Bible that year is that I would read the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Psalms. And every day I would read the Psalms, and I would read them out loud. I've never been very interested in the Psalms or even poetry. I find it kind of confusing, and I'm all about like action and doing things. Um, but in 2012, I was at the tail end of a slow recovering from a devastating depression. I was in this place where I was taking tentative steps back into an active faith, and I was relearning how to pray. And the Psalms gave me courage to approach God with my messy heart. They gave me language to talk to God, to yell at God, to plead to God, to petition God, and to thank God. And now I feel that the Psalms are real, oftentimes raw, and beautiful. And that's why I chose Psalm 26 for the scripture today, because I love it. Um, so today I'm here, and I'm going to tell you a story about how my faith used to be good, strong, and confident. And I'm going to tell you how it became beautiful, fragile, messy, broken, and real. And I promise you I'm going to cry, but I'm prepared for it, and I want you to be prepared too. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about my life. Um, my life was pretty easy until I turned 27. I have um, some friends here from my junior high school days, and they can attest that I've had it pretty good. I come from a really fun family who loves me. I have two parents. They're not only still married, they also still love each other. I have two little brothers who are troublemakers of the first degree, and they keep me laughing all the time. I was an above 4.0 student in high school. I played piano. I was in Model UN. I can sing all the words to Les Miserables from memory. I am the complete nerd package. <laughs> I was a very happy, happy nerd until I turned 27. Um, I loved high school, and I had lots of great people in my life. I went to college at UC Davis. I studied abroad. I met my husband, right here, front row, front row husband. 
I met him when I was 19. I married him when I was 22. When I was 24, I had my dream job. I had everything, and I believed that my good fortune was a consequence of my striving and goodness. Sometime, I, I wouldn't say that out loud because I knew that was wrong, and I was very actively trying to be good, so I, I would never have said that to you, but I understand now that I really believe that. And sometime around the age of 27, one of my coworkers, um, several of my coworkers are here today too, thank you guys, <laughs> um, said to me, Wow, Emily, you really have it together. I mean, look at you. You've already been married five years. You're organized. You're great at your job. You're not out partying every weekend and hungover every morning. Um, and on the outside, I said to her, no, you're totally fine. Like, you're finding your own path. It's all cool. Like, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I w because that's the right thing to say, right? You go, yeah, you're a mess, right? <laughs> you should stop drinking so much. Um, but on the inside, and this is really embarrassing to admit, but I totally agreed with her. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm awesome. I'm a good person. I'm doing the right thing. And this lovely life I have is a consequence of my actions. Um, of course, as it goes, not long after that, things started going not very well. I got a new job that was even better than the job I already had, obviously, because I'm amazing. <laughs> um, right? I got this job, or so I thought. I was amazing. Um, but it turned out to be a nightmare. It, the job was a total debacle, and it was my first real taste of failure. I tried so hard at that job, and it got worse and worse and worse. And just a few months after, I was kind of like interiorly uh, self-congratulating myself about how together I was. I was so stressed out that I was waking up sobbing in the middle of the night. My boss was threatening to fire me, and I was completely exhausted. So this is just like a little health tip for you guys. If you wake up and you're crying, should probably get into therapy or change your situation because that's not normal. <laughs> My friend Jason is here. He's a therapist. He can help you with that. He's right there. Talk to him afterwards if that's your situation. <laughs> um, I ended up quitting that job, and for me, that felt like a huge failure. I had never quit anything before because I'm good at all the things. I was good at school. I was good at following the rules. I was good at pretending to be nice most of the time. And as you'll note, I'm especially very good at being prideful. Um, over the next few years, things got worse and worse, and failure started to feel like my destiny. The harder I tried to do things right, the more it felt like things didn't work out. I wanted to throw away my professional drama, so I just was like, whatever, you know, work's not life, it's fine. And I, I started concentrating on starting a family. I took up running, I stopped drinking, I stopped drinking everything, all the fun things, I stopped drinking them, including coffee. I'm pretty sure I drank coffee then. Anyway, I made a lot of sacrifices, that's the point. And despite all this, I mean, I started running, which anyone, I hate running, anyway. <laughs> I like love, we're in an abusive relationship, I'm not sure what I feel about running. Um, so I did all those things, and despite this, in 2008, a doctor called me and told me that having biological children might not ever happen for me. And it was really sad. It was a really sad part of my life. And just like the job that I couldn't make work, I didn't want to think about it. I didn't want to dwell on it. I didn't want it to be my story. I defend myself against the world by pretending my heart is stronger than it is. I don't deal with my problems or enjoy feeling negative emotions because I feel it means I am ungrateful. Who am I to complain when I've had it so good? 
I protect myself from disappointment and loss by wishing that nothing can hurt. And most of all, I felt like a good person wouldn't get stuck pitying themselves. So I took like, you know, two months to mourn this gigantic loss in my life. Um, and I mean, there was a lot of crying, but there wasn't a lot of taking time to deal with that. And um, so the next thing we did is we started paperwork for adoption. And by late 2009, we were sent the picture of the little boy that many and many of you know very well, and some of you see here every week. And it was a really joyful moment. It was so exciting to share his picture with our friends and family and name him. Um, I imagine it's like when you get that ultrasound and you're like, this is my baby. This is my future. This is the child who will be my life. I mean, it was amazing just celebrating with our friends. I remember because I, I called them all to our house and I had to trick some of them to come because I had plans. And I was like, I need you to hear to sign paperwork for the dot. Anyway, I made a big deal about it because I'm dramatic. Um, <laughs> And it was just so exciting. Um, but that happy moment didn't last very long for me. Because right after that, I got really angry and really sad. Because we had to wait three months to go pick him up. And it was one of those things where you don't know how long the wait is going to be. You're just waiting for people to do paperwork. And it was three months. And every night, I would go to bed, and I would stare at that empty crib. And I would just, my heart would break. It would break over and over and over again. Um, and now I kind of want to take a break from my story, and I just want to tell you some things about adoption, because I think there's a great temptation to idealize the experience. Um, adoption is beautiful, but it is also born out of suffering and sadness. And adoption cannot happen unless a family that should be together cannot be together because of bad circumstances. And many times, although not always, an adoption is initiated because someone or someones who want to create a family cannot do so. So I want you to keep that in mind. The adoption was and is the best thing that ever happened to me. I love my son, and he is the greatest gift I have. But there was a lot of sadness that led up to that moment. And I just was overwhelmed by sadness, and I was really angry. I was angry at God that my son had to be adopted in the first place. I was angry at how much pain he would experience to make the journey to our arms. I was angry that as we waited for the federal government to process our fingerprints, he was taking his first steps and speaking his first words, and I was missing it. And most of all, I was angry because I knew the day that I met my son and held him in my arms for the first time was going to be a very hard day for him. It was going to be the day he lost the foster family he knew so well up to that point and was moved from his home and his birthplace. The day we became a family would be filled with joy and loss. I was so angry that someone so small and so innocent should have to suffer so much so early in life. And um, I didn't really know what to do about it. I felt like I should be happy. This was, this was like the moment we had been waiting for. We were going to become a family. And I remember I was at my friend Debbie's house one day, and we were, um, our, our college roommate Margie was visiting. And Margie has this, she's always been this way. She has this terrible habit of like gesticulating wildly with her hands and getting really emotional and tense, kind of like this, yeah, like me. Um, and we always, in college, we always used to cook, and we'd sing a lot when we cook, because we love to sing, and we'd like, be like, karaoke, and we'd like, sing Shakira to each other. Um, and she would always like take the knife and use it as a microphone, and really scared the crap out of me. 
because she'd be like singing and talking to me and you know like with a knife um, and so we were talking about this um, she was in town she lives in Oakland and and I was we were talking about the adoption I was filling her in and as I was talking to her I just I got really angry and I was like ranting and raging about how angry I was and and why wouldn't they process the paperwork and why was he gonna have to suffer and and, I, and then I got like a little grandiose and I was like, and Abraham and the Bible and I hate it all and why does nothing make sense and I'm so pissed off, it's not right. And Margie, who was cutting vegetables and listening to me, she kind of suddenly whirled around, she had a knife in her hand and she said, she said, she said, the suffering is not God's plan, Emily. And she was pointing a knife directly at my face when she said this. <laughs> okay, she said, Redemption is God's plan, and you will be part of that redemption. You and Herson, you are the plan. The suffering, the wrong thing, they're not the plan. Her, her words, they cut to my heart. It was the truth. My mind knew it was the truth. And that was a moment I realized that something had gone really wrong with my understanding of God. But at the time, my heart was not strong enough to process that information. After we brought our son home, things did not get better. It got worse, a lot worse. Becoming a parent is hard work. I'm sure all the parents and lots of, and actually probably everyone here knows whether you have kids or not, becoming a parent is hard work. And it's even harder if you're bearing up under the crushing disappointment, failure, and a sneaking suspicion that you, the God you've worshiped is disappointed in you and is punishing you for not being good enough by 2010, the heartache turned into something more sinister, and I became seriously depressed. I was overwhelmed by motherhood and by life, and I couldn't manage anything. Worrying that you're messing up your kids is a pretty natural part of being a parent, right? You worry about them all the time. You worry about everything. If you're a worrier like me, you've already been worrying, and now you just have a new way to direct all your worry. Um, but I, I was struggling under something heavier because every time I made a mistake, every time it was hard, I heard the demon sitting on my shoulder and whispering in my ears, this is why you couldn't have children, because God knew you would fail. You are not a good person, you are not a good mother, and now your child is going to pay the price because you didn't listen when your body said no. It was a lie, and my mind knew it was a lie, but my heart was too damaged to fend it off. And my theology of being good to find my self-worth and to earn God's grace was insufficient to protect me. And things kept getting worse. I was really depressed, not stressed out, clinically depressed. Um, and if you haven't ever experienced depression, it's really hard and unpleasant to explain, but I'm going to try. <laughs> and I'm going to do it by telling you another sad story. <laughs> You're welcome. Welcome to Sunday morning. <laughs> okay, uh, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about 2012, the year I was um, sitting in my car every morning reading Psalms out loud um, and then trying not to fall asleep in the Old Testament because it's kind of boring. <laughs> Um, so in April of 2012, um, my husband and I both got notice that we might lose our jobs in the same month. And that same month that we both found out we might not have any money, 
My mother-in-law was diagnosed with breast cancer, and my grandmother was also um, diagnosed with a very serious illness. Job loss and losing my grandmother have always been two of my greatest fears um, since I was really little. I'm exceptionally close to my grandma. My grandma is like, like my high school friends call my grandma, grandma. Some of them don't call their own grandma's grandma, but they call my grandma, grandma. That's the kind of grandma she is. So down two jobs, facing the loss, possible loss of two of the most important people in our lives. It was a thousand percent easier than being depressed. In fact, I remember thinking, this is terrible. This is like, this is not my favorite month. I do not like any of this. There was a lot of, there was a lot of crying. Not like this crying, like the ugly crying. Well, this might be ugly. I don't know. I can't see myself. Um, but it was bad. And I remember clearly thinking, this is so much easier than being depressed. I can make it through this. This will be terrible and horrible, but I will survive this because I have already been through much worse. Um, Depression is not just sadness. You can't shake it off any more than you can will away the flu. It's a sickness, and it is a liar, and it is a thief that raises up the ugliest parts of your heart and buries your true self. For me, it felt like I was having a low-grade anxiety attack all day, every day. Everything was completely unmanageable. I was constantly exhausted, and I spent most of my days oscillating between intense anger and overwhelming sadness. After experiencing depression myself, I understand why people commit suicide, and my heart really breaks for them. It's not because they don't love their families or care about other people. It's because your brain goes wrong and you can't find its way back. It's because the weight of depression is crushing your heart and stealing your hope. It is like treading water in the ocean for days waiting for rescue. You know deep in your heart that you are supposed to survive and keep moving. But you also know that there will be a point where you just can't continue on, that you'll have to give in. When I was depressed, I remember reminding myself that I need to stay on the freeway each day on the way home, that I wasn't just supposed to kind of like let the car drift off and find out what happens. Every day I'd drive home and I'd be like, just, you're supposed to stay on the road. I'd like talk myself into it, like don't let go, don't just wander off, you're supposed to stay on the road, just stay on the road, you have a child, you have to go home, just stay on the road. It's, it's a really strange feeling when your biology stops working correctly. We're designed to want to live. It's abnormal to not want to live. I knew that I was supposed to keep living, but at some points during that time, it didn't feel like a very viable option, and I knew it was wrong to feel that way. And on top of using all my energy just to keep myself on freeways and functioning and getting up in the morning, I hated myself every day. And hating yourself takes a lot of energy, so you also have to sleep a lot. But I had a small child, so I didn't do that either. Um, so this was where I was at when I came to this church community. I had stopped going to church in general because every time I went I got itchy. Like, I felt like maybe I was going to break out in hives or a rash, so I'd just leave. For my whole life, church has been a safe refuge from the cruelty of the world. Um, but I was suddenly so, so angry at God, and I couldn't admit to my anger or my sadness or my disappointment because good girls are not supposed to get angry especially not at God. But the Psalms say it's okay to engage with God no matter what, no matter where we're at. But I didn't know how to do that at that time in my life. So I broke out in hives and I ran away from the church. I came to this church to go with my friend Emily to the Tuesday night Bible study. Um, 
I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to help Emily, but really, I just wanted to go. <laughs> I like to think I'm helping people. Um, it met at Old Soul, and if I remember correctly, the people who were there that night were Lori Rose, Mark Fromm, Tim Chambers, and Dan Mendonza. Um, and they, you know, they were there all innocent as I came in with my hurricane of anger and sadness. Um, I really hated being around myself at that point in time, and it was really inconvenient because I have to be with myself all day, every day, as most of us do. Um, I just really hated being around myself, but I remember thinking, in kind of a vengeful way, really, because I was angry at God, if these people are real Christians, then they will just have to deal with me. <laughs> and they did. Over the next few years, you can ask them, they're all here, except for Tim, he had the audacity to move away from me. <laughs> Over the next few years, I argued and cussed, I was socially inappropriate and generally difficult to deal with on purpose. And nobody asked me to change. They let me be broken, they let me wrestle with hard questions, and they didn't provide cheery Sunday school answers about God loves us, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> they let me be angry. During those years, I was in a liminal space between who I used to be and who I was becoming. I was in the space between the Last Supper and Easter morning, between the cross and the resurrection, the time when your great hope has died and you are waiting in terror to see if love will ever rise again. Those three days are unimaginably dark and scary, and I was in that space for years. Somewhere in the middle of that time, I remember finally having some kind of like totally hysterical breakdown, which says a lot because every day was like a totally hysterical breakdown. Um, and I just totally lost it um, on my husband, which I also do frequently. But I mean, I really lost it. And for the very first time in a real way, I was able to admit out loud how angry and betrayed I felt by God. I remember screaming at him. I said, God has abandoned me. I tried so hard to do the right things, and he left me alone, and I am dying, and he will not rescue me. He won't help me. And my husband beat down and terrified by how my depression had stolen his wife and left him alone with our toddler son, grabbed me by the shoulders, and he said, you are not alone. I am still here. And he meant, like, I'm still here because of God, not because it's fun to be married to you at this point. <laughs> he was like, we are all still here with you. God has not left you alone. And at the point he shouted at me, I was a shell of the person I had once been. I felt there was nothing lovable left inside me. My mind, my body, my heart, they had all failed me. I had nothing left at that point in my life. That's what it felt like. But in the midst of all that failure, there were two seeds of hope. And the first was Margie's voice saying, suffering is not God's plan. Redemption is God's plan. And the second was Hersons, my husband's. You are not alone. We are all here with you. God has not left you alone. I knew at that point I needed to take some real action. I was stuck and I was getting worse every day. I was already in therapy, like so much therapy, but it wasn't enough. <laughs> they were like, you have to exercise every day and you have to take medicine and you have to, you know, and I was like doing everything that anyone told me to do. Um, but I needed more. And I ended up writing my closest friends and begging them for help. Many of those friends are in this room today. And there's several reasons I decided to tell my story, but one of them is that 
This story is a love letter to the people who loved me when I was not lovable. Um, so I wrote those friends and I begged them for help. I said, I'm so lost and I don't know what to do. I'm failing my beautiful son who I longed for for so long and love with my whole heart and I don't know how to get better. My insane behavior is destroying my relationships and I'm afraid to be alone with him. It's so scary to be like that and have to take care of a child. Her son never gets a moment's rest because I'm falling apart. Please help me. It was humiliating for someone who's always good at things, especially good at loving other people, to fail so brutally at loving the people that I loved the most. And the thing is, I wasn't alone. Those friends rallied around me. For almost two years, I went every Saturday to my friend Dahlia's house with my son, and I spent almost the entire day there, every Saturday. It's a lot of Emily's, okay? Because <laughs> it's a lot of me. And this isn't like fun, kooky, just cries a lot of me. It was like totally insane Emily every week. Every Wednesday after school, I went to my friend Debbie and Emily's house, and they collected toys and blocks for my son. At the point in time when I wrote them that letter, not one of my friends had children, but all of them stepped up to help me mother my child when I couldn't do it by myself. My own mother came to visit a lot, and when I had violent and inappropriate emotional meltdowns, instead of reprimanding me for my out-of-control behavior, she would drag me to Target. <laughs> Which is totally not my mom's MO. She'd be like, let's talk about how you can do this better. Instead, she'd be like, let's go to Target. And, uh... One day, I, you know, I don't know what I was doing, something crazy. And she was like, let's go to Target. And we were just there for like two hours, and I was sniffling, and I was like comatose. She's dragging me around. And I know that she's like using all of her energy to not like shake me and be like, oh my God, what's wrong with you? Um, instead, she's like, let's get some hangers, and maybe you need a spoonchula. Let's buy that. Um, my mom was a champion, and she, she stepped up for me. And you asked earlier what it looks like for a church to, or a community to support people when they're suffering. And it looks like this. It looks like holding your tongue when you're like, this is, this, is this, is, this is not good, what's going on here? It looks like opening your homes to people who need a safe space to be. It looks like a Bible study that lets someone take over every Bible study screaming and ranting about all the things they're angry about and then gives you ice cream afterwards <laughs> instead of a lecture. It looks like sticking by people when they're hard to love. It's easy to love people when they're being lovable. It's hard to love each other when we're damaged. And so it looks like this. It's durable, it's practical, and it's there for you. And oftentimes it makes you food. <laughs> Dahlia made me a lot of food. She made me dinner and lunch every Saturday as well. <laughs> um, during that time when I hated myself so ferociously, I met and became friends with my neighbors Jason and Meredith and the people in the Tuesday night Bible study. In my darkest hour when I had nothing to give, I was not only buoyed by the people I knew, I was granted the gift of more friends and more support. When my anger and failures felt like walking through fire, my husband's words echoed in my heart and the presence of my friends and family and even strangers gave them the weight of truth. God has not left you alone. You don't have to earn my love. It has always been here for you. 
And just to prove the point, I will send you more people with that message. I have always said that I will never be thankful for my depression, and I'm not. I am not thankful for the suffering. I am not thankful for the years I lost and the damage it caused to the people around me. But I am so very thankful for God's redemption. In 2007, my life was good, but my heart was trapped. It was trapped by the belief that love is something you earn, not something that is freely given. Somewhere along the way, I had become like the prodigal son's older brother, encaged by my pride and my ability to follow the rules. My success was my downfall. And I was like the older son, looking at the father and saying, why don't you love me? I tried so hard. I was a good person, but I was blind to my heart's inner cruelty. I did not know what it was like to fail and have to start over. I had close friends and family who suffered from mental illness and addiction, and I had no true empathy for their burdens. I knew how to say the right words, but my heart did not support them. Since the time my life was perfect, I've suffered intensely, but I am starting to be free to receive true grace. I don't wish the suffering of mental illness, and I don't want to glamorize it. I don't wish it on anybody or depression. I know, and I do not wish to give the impression that my survival is a neat, happy ending to this story. The end of this story is not, now everything is great. I don't have to remind myself to stay on the road anymore, but that doesn't mean that things are easy. The story is not about being good. It's not about being perfect. It's not about overcoming anything. And it's not about how my faith is stronger. The story is about hope and grace. It is about the gift of imperfection. It is about when twisted theology about who God is and how God behaves collapses beneath your feet. It is about how the resulting disaster allows truth and love to emerge triumphant. I don't always know how to be a good person anymore, but I am starting to know some other things that are much more valuable. I am starting to understand the psalmist's cry. We are welcome to come to God in any state. We can be angry, frustrated, scared, or depressed. We can be out of our minds with confusion and grief. The God who created the heavens is not afraid of our dark sides. I'm starting to understand that God does not expect us to be perfect. Grace is not something reserved for the good girls who earn it. It is for the sinners. It is for those who fail. It is for the bad seeds and the black sheep. It is for those of us who are more broken than we care to admit and wish to be loved more than we can imagine. It is for those who dream and wrestle with God, for those who sow with tears and long for joy. Grace is for all of us. In Romans 8, the Bible promises there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. No circumstance, no feeling, and no failure. These days, my faith is not what it once was. It is fragile, confused, and insufficient. I mean, sometimes, honestly, I come to church, I'm like, is this real? Maybe I'm crazy. That's, that's real. I really think that. But honestly, my, faithful, my faith is more real now than when I was good. The demons still turn up. They follow me around, and I would wager that they follow other people in this room around, too, with their insidious whispers. They're different for all of us, but they're there. Not good enough, not kind enough, selfish, not working hard enough, failure, bad mother, ugly, too fat, too loud, talks too much, fundamentally wrong, you didn't do it right and you're letting everybody down. You are not lovable and once everybody figures out who you really are, they will leave. 
Those voices still pursue me, and they always will, but they can't get in as easily these days because the truth of the gospel is starting to root itself in my heart in a way it never did before. We are not our successes, and we are not our failures. We are loved by God and lavished in grace. We live in a broken, scary world, but God's plan was not for things to be this way. We may often feel lonely, but God is with us. On my unmanageable days when my heart is wobbling, Psalm 34:18 steadies me. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Every night before bed, I pray the Lord's Prayer with my son, and those words have never been more meaningful to me because I don't believe anymore that following Jesus is about being good. I believe now that it is about grace and putting right everything that is ugly in this world. And as I sit there at night with my son, my beautiful son, it feels so true to me as I hear his voice speaking those words with me. It feels so true that the world is broken and scary and ugly, but the plan is for it to be different, and we can be part of the plan. I stand here today telling you the story because I truly believe that the suffering is not God's plan. And I want you guys to remember this. God's plan is for our redemption. And this is the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to my story, and may God bless you as you travel in yours. Don't worry about the fact that I said I'm mentally ill and I brought a knife to church. Let me pray. Yeah, I was afraid. She told me there was a knife. She didn't tell me until just before she came up here. So She ran everything else by me ahead of time. Let me pray. Will you pray with me? Our gracious God, thank you that um, Emily has the courage um, to share her story. Thank you that Emily is here with us today. And God, thank you that you love us when we are unlovable. As scriptures say to us, while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you that there was a group of people, the Tuesday night pod, who understood and had been already changed by you loving them while they were unlovable. And that that, that ethos and that DNA of a changed person um, was helping them know how to love Emily the way that um, makes me enviable. May you continue to work through this church, through that message. When we were unlovable, you loved us and help us to minister to those who are hurting and who we don't have the answers for. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.